and welcome to uh, the weekly Hoon with myself uh, and Peter Bale, who's with us in Auckland. I'm in Wellington. Fantastic to see you, Peter. Oh, it's very good to see you too, Bernard. Eventually, it's sixteen oh five. We've just done our news our news planning event in front of everybody. We're we're definitely not winging it, are we? No, it's all totally <laughs> professional. It's been a bit of a frantic week, actually, um, with uh, the government looking a bit ragged on this COVID front and uh, plenty of action overseas, um, which we'll get to starting with this awful situation on the border between Belarus and Poland. Tell us what's going on there. Well, it, it is a really interesting story, but and, 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 and since, since I wrote this for the spin-off yesterday in my weekly um, excellent uh, world bulletin that everybody will want to subscribe for at the, uh, at the spin-off, it's got kind of even worse. And, and, and today, Alexander Lukashenko, the... Um, uh, the president of uh, of, of Belarus, uh, who is something of a dictator and also something of a dictator uh, on the end of the strings of Vladimir Putin, suggested that um, if the European Union uh, imposes further sanctions on Belarus, that he might well uh, cut off some of the gas or restrict the gas flow that comes across Belarus and in, into the European Union. Now, why that's just, why that aspect I'm bringing up is particularly interesting because, as we've discussed a couple of times on our podcast. Um, the issue with gas in Europe is exactly the kind of jugular uh, that Putin has to, to exert control over, over, over the European Union, and he's using uh, Belarus to do that now in addition to that. And we've got this crisis on the Belarus-Polish border where um, uh, refugees, predominantly from, from, from uh, northern Iraq, northern Syria, Kurdish refugees, uh, some of whom have paid $3,000 apparently each to be flown from, um, uh, from the Middle East to, or Turkey to, um, to Belarus to Minsk and then bussed or driven or driven or walked all the way under the instruction of the Belarusian security forces to the border uh, where they're then left. And so they've caused this, you know, quite a few have in fact um, gotten through uh, but uh, you know it is causing an enormous problem, and of course the other it, it, it creates this kind of border chaos that we've been, been seen before in the European Union, particularly about uh, three years ago, if you remember, when uh, Angela Merkel let in a million refugees to Germany, uh, all of whom have been incredibly well absorbed and, and very successfully absorbed. But along with you know other populists, particularly in Poland, for example, you know it really becomes a very divisive issue. Um, uh, and it's just, you know, it's a classic, you know, there's this wonderful expression, uh, particularly around Russia, called hybrid war. And what Russia is extremely good at, as we saw in, in the United States in 2016, 2020, is the manipulation of sentiment uh, and the, the creation of artificial flashpoints, which then give it unequally unequal power, partly because Putin will do what others will not. So you've got, you know, several thousand refugees who've already gone through hell, of course, um, in the various conflicts in, in Syria and Iraq that they have been kind of spun out of, if you like, and now they're being manipulated and used by, by uh, Alexander Lukashenko as a kind of battering ram against, against European Union, but not really a battering ram to kind of let them through. He doesn't, give, he doesn't care about that. It's about disrupting sentiment, disrupting, um, uh, you know, creating chaos really in the European Union. Uh, and, and of course, and also, he's got great form. Sorry, but yeah, go ahead. And, and he's also threatening to... Um, turn off the gas tap to Europe um, just as the winter's coming, which exactly. um, must, make, exactly. must be making people very nervous. Yeah, and as, as we discussed, discussed before, you know, the, the Putin has said, oh, I'm not using gas as a weapon of the European Union. And then we look and we see that the main companies in Europe that are not holding significant gas uh, reserves are those owned by Gazprom, the Russian, the Russian uh, you know, gas champion. He is using gas and the warmth of European citizens over winter, over what's bound to be a very difficult winter, in fact, with, uh, with COVID. And of course, you've seen these tremendous spi uh, price spikes across Europe, particularly in, um, in, in Britain, as a result of either, either actual or kind of artificial shortages of gas and extra demand as the economies recover from the COVID pandemic. How much of a role do you think um, Putin is, is playing in all of this? Because uh, I understand there were nuclear armed bombers. Um, well, nuclear capable. There were nuclear capable bombers flown, flown over, flown over Belarus, which again is a very familiar tactic. Um, you, you've got you, you've got this kind of array of 
countries on the Russian on the on the Baltic on the Baltic border. So it's, it's also worth remembering that um, Russia has a tiny sliver of land which it retained after the Second World War called Kaliningrad, which is a little finger. Uh, it's the finger that was depicted in um, uh, the Tin Drum, uh, which at that point it was at, at that point when, in Gunter Grass's book it was in it was in Poland. But it's a tiny little finger that sticks out into the bottom of the uh, Baltic Sea and gives Russia access to that. But it doesn't have territorial access, to, uh, you know, to 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 get across. It has to go through Lithuania and Poland to get there. Uh, so that is where one of the you know that's always one of the points of points of tension and. I don't think Lukashenko really moves without um, talking to the talking to the Kremlin first. And if you can uh, imagine, we had um, Dmitry Peshkov, the uh, Kremlin spokesman, denying that Russia had anything to do with this, of course. Uh, and if you know, if he he lies out of both sides of his mouth. And what are the role of the of the Poles in all of this? Because they are really very nervous about Russia, always have been, and are sort of hoping that the Europeans will come and help them. But the Europeans don't love completely the whole Polish-Hungarian um, version of uh, EU, do they? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it is a really, it's a really interesting set of problems. And this is why Poland is the perfect uh, pressure point to touch. And of course, there's, there are elections coming up in Hungary where we're expecting that um, the, the entire opposition is going to join together to try to get rid of Orban. Um, but in Poland, you've got this real dilemma where you've got uh, a very conservative leadership, the uh, Law, and Justice, Law and Justice Party, and they're really, you know, they're not, they're not kind of uh, traditional European liberals. They're definitely taking Poland back to a kind of... Um, wrong to say a communist era but a sort of some sort of weird uh, amalgam between state state dominance uh, and and the dominance obviously of the catholic church or those catholic values yeah. and do you think that um putin is trying to prod europe at a time when they've got their own problems within their borders with um britain uh, at loggerheads with the eu absolutely trade deal and also the Germans having a leadership transition with Angela Merkel going. Absolutely. He's testing it. He's testing everybody all the time. And of course, he's now got another, yet another, I think this is probably the third time we've discussed this over the last year on the podcast. He's got another uh, military buildup build up on the Ukraine, which the Americans have now warned them uh, very firmly about. But, you know, and, uh, Andrew Blinken, the, uh, the um, Secretary of State, has warned Putin for probably the third time this year not to um, do anything stupid on the on the Ukrainian border, but again, can you really imagine Biden going in to protect Ukraine, which is not a member of NATO, although there is a an implicit offer of support of um, of Ukraine? But you know, Ukraine is not a member of NATO. It is not covered by the by the agreement that any attack on uh, one member nation is an attack on all. Although, of course, Poland is. And um, the Russians got away with it last time when they basically caught everyone napping. I've grabbed the Crimea and um, got away with it. That's right. That's right. So it is a really interesting set of problems. I, 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 I was underestimating the Belarusian um, story, but you know, let's just let's remember what Lukashenko does. You know, he he uh, faked an election last year, put most of the opposition in 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 jail or or banished them from the country, and even hijacked, literally hijacked, forced to, forced to land in Minsk an aircraft that was flying from Athens to Poland, which happened to have uh, a, a Belarusian dissident in it. You know, this is he's a pirate, no less. Or as, as the European Union called him this week, a gangster. Gangster, pirate, much the same thing. And I was stunned to see he'd been in that job since 1994. Mm. Um, and, and doing an, ex, an excellent job of kind of um, gritty or, Eastern European, you know, yeah. uh, Soviet-style oligarchs, Soviet-style dictators is your, yeah, it's your yeah. thing yeah now um but he's that, an extra this, you know, it's worth remembering he's a, a belarus is an excellent buffer state effectively for russia and it can use it as a kind of deniable uh deployer of some of the most outrageous diplomatic tactics you could imagine and militaries we see now plausibly deniable screen mm. um now speaking of um perfectly functional democracies um britain what on earth is going on there? I've tried not to get involved, but um, some sort of <laughs> well, some would say that you're not actually Bernard. But uh, yeah, it's a very interesting. It's a very interesting story, partly for me in my history uh, because I covered the John Major government, which became mired in what was called sleaze. And I was thinking about this week. In fact, there's quite a lot of comment in the UK this week about why we don't talk literally about corruption and we use the word sleaze. 
it's because corruption you know is is going to lead you down the road of defamation and uh corrupt people in the uk sleazy people in the uk have used the uk's defamation laws as a way to um, suppress discussion on all the, all of these kinds of topics and so boris uh, last week really walked into this walked into a door on this because he as you know he's we've talked about him before he is a bit of a buffoon but he and he kind of um has a very mobile sense of sense of ethics you know he's he's got principles and if you don't like those he's got others and he um imposed a uh, rather dramatic um uh, three-line whip in, on on his um on his parliamentarians to vote to change the parliamentary uh standards of conduct including uh, outside Parliament, there's get, getting his ministers to make threats against the woman who is the head of uh, standards in Parliament. Um, and this was all because of a guy who was earning about $600,000 a year, £600,000 a year, I think it was, and who lobbied extremely heavily for those two for the two companies that he was being paid for as a consultant. And of course, the problem is, you're not allowed to lobby either on parliamentary premises or use your position as an MP to actually lobby for those people. You know, would, he, he described himself rather, rather flatteringly as a whistleblower and said that the issues that he was exposing for his client uh, were all about food safety. But he's also connected to this. One of the companies also won a rather large uh, COVID PPE or COVID testing contract. And it's one of those things, you know, the, the UK is not generally considered by those outside it as a corrupt country. And Boris, rather embarrassingly, this week, week went to went to uh, COP26, perhaps to um, distract from the attention of this, uh, and said, I just don't believe the UK is considered to be a corrupt country. This isn't corruption, nothing to see here. And of course, people pointed out that the moment you say that, you're kind of acknowledging the elephant in the room is a very large, gray, smelly elephant. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's each day there is another revelation. You may remember from the Brexit debate that there's a, uh, if you remember the actor Brian Blessed, who had a almost ludicrous, almost comically booming voice, there's a, a stentorian uh, a, a politician called Jeffrey Cox, who was the attorney general, who is also a QC uh, and unbelievably self-regarding, you know, his, his, the, the level of personal respect that he has for himself is absolutely towering, and he has been he has been moonlighting uh, in um, the British Virgin Islands as a as a lawyer representing the government against attempts by the Governor General of the uh, BVI to open the country up to more scrutiny of its um, of its money of its uh, not money laundering not it could possibly be money laundering of its uh, company register, so. He's he's in a government which has pledged, uh, you know, since the Panama Papers and so on, to open up transparency. But he's actually working for the BVI government to try and overturn uh, transparency in um, in, in uh, the company register there. So it's 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 to say it's hypocritical or appear sorry it has the appearance of hypocrisy. Um, but as he said himself this week, he is a distinguished and highly qualified uh, lawyer and uh, no shame should accrue to him for anything. I saw a report that he was earning £6 million pounds in his yes, well, moonlighting job. It had, he had, has earned about that. You know, he is a QC. He, earns, he appears to earn well over a thousand. Look, look if I, did a, I did a sort of um, bottom, uh, a little off, off the top of my head calculation. It looks like he's been earning about a £1,000 an hour um, for this. And it was one of them, uh, which has got him in particular trouble, would appear to be appearing in court in the BVI um, by Zoom call from his office in Westminster, which is not terribly cool. But you know, nothing to see here. The, the other, there's another little story about this, which goes to, and again, it's a very British kind of corruption, particularly when there's a there's always this saga in Britain that it's um, Tory MPs who get who 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 um, have sex scandals and Labour MPs who have money scandals because um, the Tory MPs have already got the money. That isn't really playing out in this, although there's you know always some good sex scandals. In fact, one of the people who's avoided um, sanctioned because of this um, overturning of the parliamentary or voted for the overturning of the parliamentary standards commission um, is being investigated for sexual abuse of his um, of his uh, of one of his staff members. So there is there is you know there is naughtiness there as well. But today um, uh, Prince Charles's uh, private secretary resigned from his foundation um, because it would appear or well, it's over allegations. 
that he may have sold a knighthood to a Saudi donor to Prince Charles's um, Prince Charles's foundation. So you know, this is a very British kind of um, you know. <sighs> It's not actually corruption. It's just one knows one knows what one has to do to get ahead. I mean, the the the, uh, uh, the Times and the and a very clever investigative organisation called Open Democracy revealed that I think it was thirteen out of the last fourteen treasurers of the Conservative Party had all been made members of the House of Lords once their own donations to the party reached the miraculous level of three million pounds. So there's actually a price. There's, there's like a, a price. And, and you know that is uh, if if there is if there were to be a price that would be quite illegal. So um, to to much weightier matters of state um, somewhere further north in Glasgow, mm. where Boris Johnson's been talking a good game and um, waving his shaggy mop in everyone's mm. direction. Um, what has actually gone on there in the last week? And um, is it good news, bad news? Should we? Um, uh, ignore it or try. Well, and I talked to a friend hope. of mine this morning about this because I, I didn't. Well, actually, yesterday when I was writing that World Bulletin and he's there, and I didn't want to be too pessimistic because I, but I, I am pessimistic. And today, the, 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 the people who ran the Paris summit in COP, the, the COP25, which was extraordinarily successful in at least securing the necessary guarantees and limits to to stay to 1.5 which is what everybody's trying to hold on to it um at glasgow and they said this is you know this is not going to get there this is we're already get 2.4 um a, a, a remarkable organization called the the um uh, uh cat cat to Cli put out a report this Climate, Climate Action, action track, track, Tracker, tracker. Yep. said this week that um, we're, we're definitely on course for 2.4. Now, what I so there have been agreements, as we discussed in a sense last week, we, we talked about this coming up. There's been agreements on methane. There's been agreements on supposedly um, stopping uh, logging. But if you know Brazil was a, a, a signee to that, and I think it was 2030 was the limit to that. So I would say Bolsonaro can organize quite a lot of the uh, Amazon rainforest to, to go between now and then. Um, there is an agreement today between um, China and the United States, which which was somewhat unexpected. But it, again, it's it's as Greta Thunberg said, a little bit blah blah blah. Although I would argue that those those two are the other other crucial parties. But there's also talk about holding another climate summit next year to get the momentum back. Because what I have been thinking about about this, and I haven't read another analysis about this yet, and I'm, I'm not qualified to write it myself. But one of my fears about this, Bernard. Um, is that cynicism is the ultimate outcome of that because there was so much hope that came out of cop 25 uh in in paris uh kind of until until, until trump waded in and, and pulled the united states out of it but that hope i think gave us a sense that there were things that could be done that there was an international possibility of of movement and i have a feeling that the cynicism if, if, if and when COP26 in Glasgow fails, which I think it will. Uh, and, and it would appear to me that Boris Johnson has put virtually no personal effort behind this, partly because he probably feels it's a lost cause. They had a very obscure uh, British politician chairing it. Um, you know, Britain has a great foreign service, but those Sherpas that we've discussed before are all working by. So there may be a bit more to come out overnight uh, on its, into its last day. These things always go down to the, to the last moment. I've covered... Um, G7, G20 summits, uh, European Union, and you know you need to take your coffee and sandwiches and uh, and a and a um, sleeping bag if you're going to cover them, let alone actually uh, be a Sherpa there. So I, I'm not optimistic, but I and I and what I worry is that there will be a a kind of um, cynical view in the world that we then just move to um, uh, adaptation rather than mitigation. Yeah, because 2.4 degrees is um, pretty brutal for a lot of people. We're talking billions of people having to relocate mm. um, all sorts of uh, mess. Although some good news on the electric car front, um, Rivian, for those who love yeah, a double Yeah, that's one of the reasons that I mentioned it is, is that, yeah, I, I think Rivian is an interesting thing because it shows, you know, there's two, two quite big business stories this week that are related to this. And much as we might hate the fossil fuel industry, uh, and and Wall Street's ability to um, to drive this, 
it is going to be the holders of capital, the inventors and the creators who both help the amelioration, the mitigation and the adaptation. And if you think about the United States obsession with um, pickup trucks, uh, not really Utes pickup trucks, because as we know from the Dodge Ram ads in New Zealand, um, they, they, they eat Utes for breakfast. Um, you know, you know, and really you use them, you know, urban people use them to drive to Costco to buy, store, buy their stores of toilet paper. But Rivian is a, is a startup electric car company in, in the mold of Tesla, but specializing in uh, pickup trucks, which are the biggest selling car in the United States over, over many years. Amazon has turned out to have about a 25% stake in Rivian. And Rivian went into an IPO this week at $78 a share, which values it at $66.5 billion. So there's a, you know, that's the kind of development that is going to sort some of these, or that is going to confront, allow people to confront this problem and do real things like driving electric cars, you know, with all of the lithium and resources problems that come along with that as well. Yeah, um, double cab utes, uh, very popular here, um, but we're talking $100,000 for one of these uh, Rivians. And interestingly, by the time it finished trading on its first day, it was worth over 88 billion US. Mm. That mm. made it more valuable than Ford and significantly more valuable than Honda. And actually, it had only made 50, <laughs> exactly. 50, yeah. 52 of these double cab utes by October the 22nd. So there's been another couple of weeks of production mm. since then. It does have orders for 150,000, including, and this is the thing I didn't quite understand, but uh, Amazon, you're right, has that 20% plus stake in, in Rivian. And what they're, they're not interested in the double cab utes. They're interested in the electric vans yes. that Rivian is making. And um, that may be the sort of savior. If we can get lots of uh, white, van men and women driving electric vans that mm. might actually help help things on the um electric front. Yeah, and it will be you know those all of those logistical things will be extraordinary the other the other business story that's worth just thinking about this week general electric which you know is one of the great great conglomerates uh you know created by thomas edison uh turned into one of the one of the great conglomerates doing everything from um Aero, en aero engines to power stations to military contracts has spun off its uh, power generation business. And Siemens, the German company, did something similar last year. And they're all, it's all about them gear gearing up to becoming much more specialized in their power generation uh, capabilities in their abilities to, to, to tap into um, new, sources, new, new sources of energy and create new kinds of power plants. I mean, you, you're aware, I think, or we may have discussed Rolls-Royce the aero engine company, not the car company, which of course is owned by BMW, but the aero engine company uh, is working on small nuclear uh, power stations, which were, which are, uh, which Bill Gates is also investing in very heavily uh, as part of the solution, long-term solution to the British attempt to get to um, net zero by 2050. Just going back to um, China and the US, which does seem to have been the big surprise out of this COP26 thing. China is, um, hasn't committed to getting rid of its, its coal-fired power stations, but it is well, interested... It's, gone, it's rolled back on quite a few of its commitments, yes. Yeah, yeah. But it is interested in nuclear. And, um, and nuclear-powered aircraft carriers, it's quite interested in, so interested it's built one in the desert. Tell us about that. Well, that's a, yeah, so that's a, <laughs> that's a, that's a slightly elongated uh, segue, Bernard. I, I was thinking of this more of the, that, you know, they call camels the ships of the desert. But so China has actually has got uh, warships in the desert, which uh, with some fabulous um, uh, aerial satellite photographs of um, mock-ups, again, in Xinjiang, in the same province where the, where the Uyghurs are, uh, enormous models of uh, on rails of the latest American ships, the Aegis-class cruisers, American battle, American um, aircraft carriers, and it's an enormous firing range uh, and laser and, and, and radar experimentation range. These, these huge fake ships are on rails and get towed around the, you know, shunted around the desert in order to perfect the uh, Chinese Navy's ability to destroy them in a future war. Uh, and it's a, it's a remarkable sight. I, I put them in some of my stories, and if you, if you Google it, you'll see it. It's a remarkable, uh, you know, I'm sure the Americans have ways of um, preparing for, for a battle with China as well, but it's just so stark when you see these weird kind of uh, Potemkin warships set up in the middle of, in the, in the, middle of the desert. 
you know they're getting ready for something serious or being you know being prepared yeah and um and also it's interesting on the submarine front nuclear submarine front paul keating coming out and saying that uh the australian nuclear submarines are like throwing toothpicks at china yeah well it, it and also he brings up the 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 scott morrison as a as a, as a, as a liar uh problem um, I think we talked last week about Malcolm Turnbull, the former Liberal, Liberal uh, Prime Minister, um, flatly accusing Scott Morrison of lying about the submarines and lying about many other things over his career and being an inveterate liar. Uh, and yes, Paul Keating, the, the sort of um, once smooth, now rather grayed um, Australian uh, politician, also famous for his own uh, self-regard and, and turn of phrase, um, said that the, um, the AUKUS submarines um, were really actually incredibly dangerous because they they put Australia into a kind of unnecessary competition with China that that will do nothing. And as you say, he said uh, the UK planned for nuclear UK US and Australian planned for nuclear powered submarines were like throwing a handful of toothpicks at the mountain. Um, and it, and it is really interesting this this degree to which Australia has uh, is or is in the middle of risking putting its uh, entire uh, foreign policy and defence policy in the hands of the United States, including supplying um, the submarines. Because if they if they choose one of the particular uh, submarines that's probably available from the United States, states it will be they'll be utterly dependent on. In fact, they'll they'll just what Keating is saying is that they'll really become uh, just a sort of um, foreign partner which the US will will use to direct um, its activities against against China. Um, Scott Morrison, just while we're on the humorous to topic of ScoMo, uh, in an interview yesterday, said he doesn't believe he's told a lie in public life, ever. So I think we can see some, there's going to be some fabulous lists of the lies of, um, of, of Scott Morrison shortly. Scott I don't, from, asked if he'd ever told a lie in public. Mr. Morrison replied, quotes, I don't believe I have. No, no. Perhaps he couldn't recall. No, exactly. <laughs> Um, I'm just wondering how we're going to segue into the New Zealand COVID situation. Which, well, uh, we could do it through the misinformation lens, Bernard. Ah, there you go. Because That's I good. thought it was quite, you know, we, we know that mis and disinformation are an incredible problem in the world. Misinformation being the the the, the accidental, if you like, distribution of um, of incorrect information or damaging information and disinformation being, being doing it deliberately. Uh, you and particularly uh, somebody you know, your your uh, talented photographer partner, uh, were rather exposed to that demo in, in Wellington the other day, which seemed not small enough to ignore and big enough to worry about, given the sentiments that was there. I mean, it was a collection of the antis, anti this and anti that, but there was a certain grumpiness there. There were definitely interesting attacks on media and underlying it all seemed to be a belief in bollocks. Yeah, it was a fairly sobering effort. Uh, Lynn and I followed the march right from the start at Civic Square along to Parliament, so along Willis Street, right along Lambton Quay. All of those um, cardigan-wearing, suit-wearing suit, um, um, bureaucrats watching as some um, motley crew of uh, a mongrel mob, um, a whole bunch of anti-vaxxers, um, a whole bunch of... Uh, uh, Yoga pants wearing middle-aged mom. Oh, yoga pants were a dead giveaway. Dead giveaway. <laughs> and it was a weird collection. Were they patched? What? Were they patched yoga pants wearers? <laughs> I just want to see that the 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 yoga um, gang. Uh, mm. with, with a, maybe Lulu. Well, Lemons. I see them every day in in, um, in Joe Voice Road. Oh ah, yeah. Mm. Um, and so it was a weird collection, but what? most interesting what i found most interesting was that so many people had done their own signs so mm. it wasn't like rent a mob and there would have been at least two thousand if not three thousand people there so that makes it makes it substantial probably the biggest march since the um, black lives matter and climate change marches mm -hmm. last year and uh it, there was genuine sort of anger and frustration no mask wearing uh and at times it was slightly hostile and as a member of the media um uh, we did get abused. There were a couple of cases where. Um, young... do, do you think that's particularly because you're quite a large, a large and well-known target? Yeah, uh, because I wasn't uh, wielding a camera uh, and didn't look like a media person. I think I got away scot-free. Mm. But the people who had big um, TV cameras, mm. they were getting um, things thrown at, and thrown, yeah. Yeah, thrown at them. And there was one horrible case where 
a couple of young men were um, had bottles of water with them and were sluicing it back and forth and spitting at the at the camera crew, mm-hmm. which was just ugly. And at, at the end, um, when a lot of people had left, there were obviously some who were who believed all the hype online about uh, doing a January six and trying to break into Parliament mm. and drag out the Prime Minister and all sorts of things. They never got anywhere near that. But you can see there is now a significant group of people who feel so disconnected, disillusioned, unwanted, unlistened to, that um, they are not interested in being part of this vaccinated group. And you've got to remember now, we're moving towards vaccination mandates, which mean that you probably can't get a job. About 60% of jobs will probably have vaccination mandates. You probably can't go to the pub or the club or the bar or the restaurant. You probably can't go into a... You could probably do click and collect. <laughs> yeah. They'll probably maintain it for the unvaccinated. Yeah. Um, yeah, you can't uh, fly domestically. You can't fly internationally. You're essentially, you really are a second-class citizen. Now, of course, many people will just capitulate and um, uh, suck it up, so to speak, and, and move on. But a lot of people who were in that march, they'll never get vaccinated. If anything, their views have been hardened by this. Do you think the possibility? So, is it is it clear to you, Bernard? I know you've been to the to the to the um, Ashley, Ashley Bloomfield events. Is it is it is it clear whether offering AstraZeneca, as they are now talking about offering it to anyone who wants it now, rather than just uh, that small group of people who are who are potentially um, at risk with the Pfizer vaccine? Do you think that may have any impact? No, the complaints are not science-based or, or in any way. It's simply anti-vaccination, anti-mandate, and this vague idea of freedom, which adopts a lot of the language and techniques of sort of uh, far-right, pro-Trump. Um, it is extraordinary to the, to the extent to which it's, it's a direct infection straight across from the United States. And we know that some of it, you know, the guy the guy who interrupted um, Jacinda Ardern the previous week at the... At the um, event in Northland, you know, was was a member of a group that's funded by Steve Bannon or headed by Steve Bannon. You know, they're, they're definitely aiming for high profile people outside the United States like her and see this as 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 rich, a rich field to play in. And uh, it was interesting this week, we got a report out from Tupunaha Matatini, mm. identifying a significant surge in misinformation, disinformation through August, September and October, as a lot of the uh, um, anti-vax misinformation off, is often combined with this quite extreme right, um, pro-gun, um, pro-old-timey uh, religion stuff. More anti, yeah, and anti-everything else. Yeah, has, has spilled over into the New Zealand social media landscapes. And you saw a lot of the, the words and the symbols used in this march. Mm. For example... Um, there are a couple of pro-Trump flags in, in the march and a Russian flag. Excellent. Oh, that's very good. Well, we know who's, yeah, Christ, they've always, yeah, this, quite, they're there. Quite a, in a strange mix of um, Confederate flags, but also the um, the Māori uh, tina, tina, um, tina Rangatira. Uh, that's, that, 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 that's excellent. Right. My Toreo is better than yours. Yes, yeah, yeah. And also the United Tribes flag, which yeah. has been co-opted. It is very interesting the way that that those those two flags have been co-opted into these into these groups, and of course one of the other things that uh, uh, Te Punaha uh, Matatini has talked about before, uh, really even last year, was the susceptibility of Maori and Pacifica um, uh, people to conspiracy theories, partly because of decades of mistrust of government. So we're seeing this kind of perfect storm arrive. I, I worry about it, Bernard, too. The what is the government, what are you picking up from the government about this? Because it doesn't, it, it, this, the mandate issue has become one of enforcement rather than public health in terms of the messaging. It's all about you will have a difficult life if you're not vaccinated. And I don't, I find that profoundly uncomfortable as a, you know, as a kind of um, liberal, um, you know, freedom loving gun, gun toting um, Pern Bay person, you know, it's, um, uh, you know, we it is it is a great risk to emphasise the control factors in this and de-emphasise the public health factors. Yeah, and I think this is what um, Jacinda Ardern was worried about when she was so reluctant to adopt these mandates until very much the last minute, when it was mm. clear that 
um, you needed to use whatever tools you could to get the vaccination rate up. And so we've already had mandates for about 40% of the workforce come through and we're still waiting for mandate for the police. It's a bizarre situation where mm. we could have unvaccinated And she police. seems very reluctant to yeah. force the police, which, yeah. which, is, which seems strange to me, but I wonder whether her father's history as a policeman and her experience of the police mm. force leads her to have some some personal view of that I'm, I, yeah. I doubt that that would lead that would necessarily influence influence her completely because there are of course you know there's a minister of police and there's, and there's Chris Hipkins but what's going on there yeah it's it's very strange now it, it, it is partly a numbers game uh, currently is about 85 percent of the police who are vaccinated so you're talking uh, you know more than a thousand police who would have to stand down mm -hmm. and the argument is you know we can't quite afford that at the moment but there is a real risk here. You'd have unvaccinated police who are checking people leaving the border in Auckland to see whether they've got vaccination certificates, which is just crazy. And uh, the one thing I've seen in the last few days is, is the government coming to the realisation that they're going to have to accelerate whatever they do with opening up and try to time it so that everyone goes to the same level at the same time so you mm. can get rid of this need for the borders. That's right and then potentially control it with regional lockdowns in those areas that are most affected. And unfortunately- Which I can't quite see working myself. And I, that's clearly gonna put tremendous pressure on hospitals all over the country, including rural hospitals, one would have thought. And particularly in those regions like Taranaki, Whanganui, um, Tairawhiti and the likes, where uh, they're gonna uh, have the biggest burden. I was just checking again this week, Murapara, um, which I'm familiar with, and the prime minister grew up in, in the policeman's um, house there it is still 50 percent unvaccinated partly because it's because it's local gp practice there are two two yeah. two i think gps in there who won't get vaccinated yeah and uh, in a local... critical in an absolutely critical area i know and there's one I iwi there for example who are going to have their annual meeting this weekend they postponed the annual meeting so that iwi members can go to the protest march in favor of the anti-vax mm. doctors mm. So there's um, a lot of work to be done to get everyone on board. And already we're seeing this week, and this is why I think it's now likely that the government will move to open up to everyone at the same time as soon as possible after November 29, if only um, to avoid the awful snarl-ups at the borders. Mm. And the political- and confrontation. Yeah, and, and uh, creating spark, spark points for protests, like we've seen earlier at this Tahana week. And, and, yeah, yeah. And, the, yeah, and the Hickaway down at, down at Mercer last week. Yeah. yeah. It's a very interesting, there's another controversy, Bernard, that I want to touch on, and I'd, I'd like to go sort of elliptically around this to the to your, to, I, I, I'm interested, we, and we can, we've talked about this a little bit, the Prime Minister's um, stature, Labour's stature fell a little bit in some polls this week, but you and I both know uh, one of the, um, one of the best known modelers in this, or two of them really, I, I don't know, Sean Hendy from Te, uh, Te Punaha Matatini, but uh, his organization is in a quite a spectacular confrontation with Rodney Jones, who is a, uh, a much more commercially minded, um, you know, financial modeler, but who has turned those talents towards measuring the impact of COVID and was extremely powerful or influential in the go hard and go early campaign last year. Now, we know from documents that have been now been released, the Herald had them the other day, uh, published under the Official Information Act, that show that there was a really active confrontation behind the scenes between Rodney's group and uh, Te, uh, Te Punaha uh, Matatini, which accused him of being, or said it would be racist to go ahead with a program to try to tackle um, the surge in cases in South Auckland. Uh, which Rodney had very skillfully, I think, identified. He believes, I think, uh, that he that he and the, and that had been very well identified even last year that uh, an outbreak in South Auckland amongst um, uh, relatively impoverished communities, multi generational households, people in um, transitional housing would be incredibly dangerous. And so it has proved. And yet, I thought that was really dangerous for that that uh, proposal to go really deeply into those areas. Was, was then branded as racist, particularly when you've got this problem of uh, there being a racial bias towards, towards getting COVID and towards not getting um, vaccinated. Yeah, it's, it's a really unfortunate um, trend now 
that one way to shut down debate in a really hot topic is to simply accuse someone of being racist. And in this case, uh, where uh, Rodney Jones was advocating for uh, significant and widespread surveillance testing around September the 7th, when it could, you could have seen uh, the outbreak cordoned off and contained and possibly squashed in South Auckland. Yeah, but we missed that. I mean, even even if we because we've now rather conveniently said as and not to not to use the Jacinda and um, and and Grant phrase, which is you will have heard me say when there's absolutely no record of them having said such a thing. Um, you know, even though we now say it was perhaps always always impossible to contain um, uh, the Delta variant he did have a plan to try and do that. And he absolutely actively proposed that. And it was absolutely not actively taken up. And I, I see a similar parallel really, Bernard. And it's not 100% the same, but with the Rawiri Jansen um, criticisms of, of Maori vaccination, that I, my belief is in that case, that the government was extremely nervous to be seen to be favoring Maori in a sense, even though they were the most at risk. Yeah, that was uh, one of the things that uh, struck me this week was the continued defiance of the Ministry of Health in mm. not releasing the data to uh, John Tamahiri's Whanau Order Commissioning Agency to the point where a couple of cabinet ministers, uh, including um, Willie Jackson and uh, uh, Andrew Little, Andrew Little, um, as I well believe as Andrew Little is, uh, is isn't Andrew Little the Minister of Health? It could be. <laughs> In fact, he is. Yeah. And, and also Penny Henare, who's the Associate Minister of Health, both of whom come out publicly and criticise the Ministry of Health and Ashley Bloomfield for uh, continuing to defy not just um, uh, many people within the Māori community who wanted that data to mm. go and find unvaccinated Māori, but also um, from, uh, you know, a, a bunch of people who, who think that the Ministry of Health has been too inflexible, too Wellington focused, not willing to work with local community groups in a way which has harmed the vaccination effort. Mm. And Rawiri Jensen um, called out the Ministry of Health way back in February uh, for its decision to go ahead um, with a vaccination program focused on uh, people who are older and people who had particular medical conditions, yeah. rather than just saying, let's go and make sure we vaccinate Māori and Pacifica first. Um, and that decision, I think, when the Royal Commission is launched, and there will be one, will be one of those key um, moments where uh, we realise we got it wrong on the vaccination front. Mm. And Ashley Bloomfield, for all his public popularity, may well have... Um, still have the you know the heart of the public for all those appearances at the 1pm presses but behind the scenes in the cabinet um he's lost the There's some disquiet yeah. confidence um of some of those uh cabinet ministers and, and bernard what's happening with the i don't want to call it the pr front but in a sense it is the information front you know we saw some pretty extraordinary i i thought actually deeply poor journalism this week from uh barry soper at the new zealand herald where you get a lot of inflammatory um zb um, rather ranty coverage, which is not so much journalism as just plain old commentary. But it was a pretty bitter attack on Jacinda Ardern. What do you do you detect as happening in the beehive around the conveying of the messages? Is it is it that they're no longer sort of as effective? Is it that they have in fact rather lost control of this? Having you know containment was a was a different was a different thing to try and explain. Yeah, well, the, the government put all its eggs in the elimination basket and managed to get so much of New Zealand emotionally involved to, to really connect to that, that idea, that message to invest in it. And when it didn't happen, when there was that inevitable pivot and the admission of failure, which was never formally admitted or uh, clearly not prepared for. Well, Bernard, as you remember me saying, we've always predicted this was going to happen exactly this way. <laughs> well, yeah, no, there's some interesting um, columns that were written a while mm. ago, uh, which um, I think the government can rightly be accused of, of not preparing for the potential failure of the elimination strategy under Delta. And I think also it's sort of natural when you're under attack permanently, you tend to go into your shell 
and uh, particularly when you're tired and you um, believe you're being unfairly attacked, what happens is you pull back from engaging with people who don't necessarily agree with you. Uh, the Prime Minister's already stopped talking to um, Mike Hosking and uh, Newstalk ZB in particular and the New Zealand Herald have never been flavour of the month with mm. um, that side of politics, but it's, it's hardening. So essentially it's, it's a, an almost natural um, case of a government deep into its second term. This is often third term stuff uh, yeah. where a government will, will um, stop talking to certain people where it, it, it's almost permanently in a defensive crouch. We're not quite there yet, but it's not far off. Can they pull it back? I think if they can, if we have a good summer. If we go through the summer, the hospital copes, hospitals cope, there aren't too many deaths, and we get through the other side, and we're starting to see a lot more mm. people come through the border. The likelihood of coping, though, I mean, if you look at uh, the charts that our, our lovely friend Mark Dolder does at the at newsroom, the the, uh, the the curve that we're on at the moment is at the top end in all senses of the government's curves, except for I think ICU admissions, um, hospital admissions are up. The, the 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 number of cases is is right against the the worst the worst forecast in that government modelling. Yeah, and that is um, that, that is the key thing though. It's the ICU. Uh, space and the ability to cope with that, which is mm. the real crunch point. So if we've got more hospitalizations than we expect and more cases than we expect, we can sort of cope with that. Mm. It's that ICU. And, and obviously, the more hospitalizations you've got, the more chance you're going to have more people go to ICU. Yeah. And uh, we can only hope that the way that it's being treated, which has been better this year than last year all mm -hmm. around the world, but New Zealand's done seems to have done quite well. And there are more drugs coming through that help reduce the impact. And we can only hope we hang on just long enough for these new wonder pills to come from Pfizer. And uh, I think it's Moderna has, a, has mm. one as well. Um, that, that's the thing. If the government can get through the summer and come out the other side with people had, having had a reasonable yeah, time. And do not, I'm absolutely not convinced that they're going to. I, I, find, I, I keep seeing Andrew Little uh, show very little faith in his own department. Um, he was on the on the radio yesterday talking about uh, how that how the, the department had not had or the DHBs had not adequately prepared. Uh, I was talking to to a doctor today who told me that um, doctors are getting called back or being warned that they may be called back into places like Middlemore even after retirement. And in one particular case, this doctor was said we, we'd like you to come in and be a turner, which is somebody who turns people over. And this was a highly specialized doctor who was. Um, you know, basically, you and I should be in there, but Bernard doing it rather than um, rather than this person. I just, I'm not convinced that the health ministry or the DHBs are in a fit state to um, to endure that. Not that I want to depress everybody. Can no. I just address just one question before we go on to sure. the F, my FW de Klerk war story and then questions? Yes. Um, just going back, David Larson very reasonably said, "Was I was I conflating the issue of?" information sources to susceptibility to disinformation. And, and a, uh, I'm not. Um, I, what I'm referring to is a study that was done, like, well, that was published last year about the propensity of those communities to uh, believe in conspiracy theories and the extent to which they acted upon them. You're absolutely correct that young Maori, young, many young people look at um, social media more, that will trust social media more, and not just young people. I mean, the, the whole point of some of these um, yoga groups, for example, uh, is that they are, you know, sharing their information or as, or as we say, doing their own research, which is, you know, very dangerous words. Let me tell you just briefly about a very silly old war story, which I'll use as our um, skateboarding dog story. Uh, F.W. de Klerk, the former uh, South African president who uh, brought about the uh, multi-party elections in 1994, released um, uh, Nelson Mandela in 1991 um, died overnight and he did the most extraordinary thing uh, he issued his 85 died at 85 died of mesothelioma uh, and he issued a pre he did it recorded a pre-death sorry difficult to do a post-death one a, a pre-death video in which he apologized for the uh, damage of apartheid and he said quotes I without qualification apologize for the pain and the hurt and the indignity and the damage that apartheid has done to black, brown and Indians in South Africa. And I, I think that is kind of typical of the man. I covered the 1994 uh, multiracial elections, which was the happiest story 
that I had ever covered. I went with a flak jacket and I went expecting violence and KwaZulu-Natal. Uh, there was a little bit of violence in some of the Afrikaans areas. There was a little bit of violence in KwaZulu-Natal, but nothing like uh, what was expected. And it turned into a rather joyous uh, event to cover. Now, all of us in that reporting mission wanted to be with or near Mandela on the night of the election when the results were coming in. And I drew a short straw, which actually turned out to be the best straw, in my opinion, because nobody got really close to Man Mandela because there were so many millions of people there. But I was with F.W. de Klerk that night in a little room, in a little sort of um, banquet hall, if you like, but very small, like, like a sort of sports club dining room in um, Pretoria. And we got talking that night and I spent a lot of time I was able to be right beside him, talking to him, interviewing him, asking him questions. He was quite pissed. Uh, he was drinking quite a lot of whiskey, as I recall at that point. Uh, and because I was about 11 and reporting it for Reuters, I wasn't, of course. But I found him to be, I mean, I've got a wonderful story about it, which I, which I will have to try and find. But it was really extraordinary to be with him and to see his reaction of his entire world, a world that he had defended as an, as, a, as an Afrikaans politician for many, many, many years and being part of the administrations that held up apartheid, to see somebody like that um, so profoundly proud and so profoundly respectful of Mandela being elected uh, and of the process that he had put underway, that you had to really feel that, that when he ultimately got it, he, he, he and Mandela were worthy winners of the, of the Nobel Peace Prize at that time. But I just... I just it was one of the first times in my reporting period when I had spent really close time with somebody who had um, changed so profoundly themselves that they'd, you know, they'd changed their own heart, but they also changed the direction of that, of that country in remarkable ways. Did he explain what it was that triggered the change or whether there was a moment or, or some collection of, a weight of yeah he things. did he did he did he did and it was all about the isolation it was you know he wanted an, he well he was also trying to avoid civil war he wanted to avoid the the isolation of south the ongoing isolation of south africa he felt it was unsustainable and, and i think he just got to a moment where and I'm, you know people can find out what his what his words were more than me putting words into his mouth but it was about hope for south africa and of course he's been deeply concerned that some of that hope has been dashed by, by some of the mismanagement and um, misdirection in South Africa, particularly under the ANC. Um, but he was trying to create an optimistic future for the majority of South Africans, for all South Africans, black and white and colour. Yeah, and it's a place that continues to surprise us with um, amazing things, luckily, luckily for us in rugby as well. So it's... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah. No, no. I mean, it, it is a it is a story, a great story to have someone who changed their views while in public so life. profoundly. Yes. Yeah, and to do it in a meaningful way, not a sort of you know after the fact. Oh, by the way, I've changed my mind. You know, um, that's right. For, for example, Jim Bolger, um, New Zealand Prime Minister, has mm. um, changed his views completely on the whole neoliberal reforms, which mm. he was the Prime Minister of, mm. um, but he did it after. He left, and uh, you know that it's um, it's quite a thing. Now we've got some questions to answer here. I'm I'm very keen to try and get get through them. Um, starting off uh, with um, uh, let's go with uh, what was the anti-vaxxer lawyer saying to the crowds? Uh, I, I think you're talking there about Sue Gray. I think we all know what what she thinks, which is. Um, in my view, uh, incorrect. And um, I'm sort of surprised that she's uh, not being um, uh, prosecuted. Arrested, arrested and thrown in jail. <laughs> yeah, well, isn't she, isn't she actually defending one of the um, Destiny Church people? Not not Tamaki, but she's defending one of the people, I believe, who, um, That's right. who led she, one of the protests. Yeah, yeah, no. Um, so I'm not advocating that Sue Gray should be put in jail, by the way. Or, no, no. We've got a couple of questions on inflation and interest rates. So um, yes, it's your, your, your Bernard. Your, your over to you for your 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 specialist subject. Yes, yes. Um, wage inflation. Now we got some figures in the last couple of weeks showing that um, consumer price inflation in New Zealand and elsewhere elsewhere is going for five or six percent, and seems to be challenging the idea it's transitory. 
But nowhere in the world yet are we seeing evidence from the official statistics that wage inflation is taking off, and certainly not in a way that's higher than consumer price inflation. And if anything, um, there is real wage deflation going on after you take into account the, um, uh, the rise in prices. Now, you could say, well, that's, that's going to hurt a lot of uh, workers and force them to go for even bigger pay rises next, next time, which would start some sort of spiral. But we're not there yet. Now, the big news in the last week on the inflation front was the um, US Federal Reserve's uh, um, decision uh, to um, start tapering its mm. uh, money printing starting this month and uh, going on into the middle of next year. And we also got US uh, consumer price inflation figures showing inflation up over 6% to a 30-year high. This is better than expectations that will be two rate hikes next year in the United States. And also the Australians effectively were, were beaten up by the markets last week and have, have effectively declared defeat um, in the same way that uh, John Major and um, mm. um, what was the name of the... Norman Lamont. Norman Lamont were beaten up by the markets uh, and forced out of the... Exchange it was a bit more dramatic than, than, than what Australia has gone through so far. Oh, yeah. You talked to a few bond dealers in Australia. They were pretty excited. <laughs> um, so that's, um, that's, a, that's a big deal. Question, the question really you're all asking is... Um, so Are our the, house price is going to continue going up at 2% a month? And the answer is yes. Yes, yes. Wow. Um, we got numbers this week showing house price inf inflation actually accelerated to 3.3% in October. I mean, if you put a straight line through that, we're talking 30% plus inflation. Now, that's mm. not got, what yeah, yeah. Thank God we haven't got immigrants coming in, taking our houses and our jobs. And just imagine if interest rates were lower. And, I'm kidding. Um, I'm being yeah, sarcastic. I know. It's amazing, really. There's been all sorts mm. of stuff done by the officials to try and slow it down. It's still a race ahead. It's all about expectations and a fear of missing out. So there's a lot of people who own houses are reluctant to put them on the market because they might miss out on that crucial 10 20% over the next year. And a lot of people who, of course, worry that if they don't buy now, when they have to buy in a year's time, they won't be able to afford the deposit on a house. So you get this sort of frantic FOMO going on. Mm. And we're seeing that um, extraordinarily um, in Auckland, actually, in the middle of this you know, awful lockdown. It seems most people are focused on the one thing that really matters in Auckland, which is do you own your home? And um, when are you going to get one if you don't? And if you've got one, when are you going to sell it and move up? So it's, uh, it's, it's quite a, a weird system. Now, we know that the Reserve Bank is likely to put up interest rates again here on November the 24th, but it's already flowing through into mortgage rates. The question is, is it enough to slow down the market and will it some, trigger some sort of collapse? Um, I certainly don't think so. And if you look at um, what the Reserve Bank and Treasury is itself forecasting, along with a lot of others, they're saying another 10 to 15% rise in prices before it starts to flatten out. So you can see why there's a whole bunch of people getting involved in FOMO. Mm. So Bernard, uh, can we can we can we expect? You know, one of one of the people on the on the side uh, makes a point about have we can we really only cope with 120 cases when it's fairly clear we're going to get more? Um, is it possible that a, that COVID is going to cause a, a downturn if we have a major outbreak? Yeah, well, it's certainly slowing things down in the rest of the world. You've got Germany mm. and the Netherlands looking to go into lockdown for Christmas. Uh, it's not quite, uh, we don't have fresh waves in America yet, but certainly in China, uh, this didn't get a lot of attention, mm. so much else happening. But there are various parts that are starting to lock down in China because they're the only place in the world now that still has an official elimination yeah. policy. Yeah. And there's even some debate, and this is extraordinary in China, where things aren't debated in public. There's even some debate from various economists and um, uh, people on the fringes of government there saying, we just can't handle, the economy can't handle these lockdowns. And uh, certainly there's been a slowdown in factory activity and a rise in prices as um, some of the uh, um, restrictions cascade through the mm -hmm. supply chains. And, and um, that's the thing to watch, I think, what's happening in China. Although um, certainly not hurting us at the moment, um, one of the big pieces of news I think that everyone's missed is that uh, our um, terms of trade and our um, export prices are at record highs in New Zealand dollar terms. And um, great time to be a farmer, although not if you actually talk to them. They're all pretty grumpy about the world. Yeah, well, they always are, but, you know, you know. <laughs> 
they'll, they'll all be buying new new red bands and new Gallagher fences. Gallagher fences. Ah, yeah, double care buttes galore mm. at the next mm. at the next um, uh, field days. Yeah. So uh, we've got a question from an anonymous attendee: Are we headed for a market collapse worse than two thousand and eight? Um, so there's a bunch of people. Saying, I said neither, uh, partly because of our own investment uh, performance, neither of us are qualified to give this advice on any basis. Because I th I've been expecting a crash for quite a long time, and it just doesn't happen. It hasn't happened. So, whatever you say, be careful, Bernard. Go right. Yeah. Um, certainly, this is not financial advice, and everyone should consult their financial advisor who's regulated by the Financial Markets Authority. But um, all I can say is. We've been, <laughs> we've been here before so many times mm. where it's looked like um, the fundamentals say collapse and there might be a wobble, but then almost always the central bank or the government steps in, changes the rules, prints some money to avoid a meltdown. And, and there's the wall of money. You know, there is the, exactly. the amount of money being saved into pensions globally and so on has to go somewhere. You know, this is what we see with these extraordinary IPOs, the... A uh, huge amount of money coming into the, coming into New Zealand from the United States into startups at the moment. Um, you know, there's a there's a there's a lot of equities, a lot of investment in equities still going on. Yeah, and essentially um, now that there's been so many of these false um, collapses where people have lost their nerve and jumped out, thinking, "Well, this is the this is the one," mm -hmm. and then they held out. You're looking at somebody three. who did that last year with <laughs> one investment, yes. And held out and then waited for a couple of weeks. And then the inevitable central bank statement saying, ah, oh, well, we wouldn't want the market to fall too much. And look, the inflation has gone away and we'll keep printing. And remember, you've got to remember the European Central Bank is still printing at a rate of 80 billion euros a month, isn't planning to start slowing it down until the middle of next year. The US Federal Reserve is still printing at $120 billion a month. It is slowing it down, so about 15 billion off every month, but that's still more than $100 billion a month that's being printed. Add up the two of them with a couple of others, you know, there's still $200 billion of cash being invented out of nowhere and going straight into asset prices still. And um, yes, the Fed might uh, start putting up interest rates next year, but the, the wall of invented cash that's pumping up asset prices is not going away. And now you've got so many people who expect to bail out. It's quite hard to to get a, a, um, a real collapse going because mm. everyone says buy the dip. And so that's um, that's where I think uh, this isn't a market about fundamentals. It's about expectations of bailouts, which have been... Sentiment. It's all about sentiment. Yeah, yeah. which have been met. And um, effectively, the, the, the central banks have put a floor under the market and the floor keeps rising as, as fast as they print. Yeah. And I think we'll be buying utes before we buy Bitcoin. But well, <laughs> certainly I will be, which is... Yeah. An electric ute, a Rivian, yeah. maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yes. Uh, we've got a question here about China and Kiribati and the PIPA reserve situation. Oh, that's one on, yeah, that's finally stumped us, team. <laughs> this is the first time I've ever been asked a question. I didn't really know what was that about. Um, so, uh, yeah, no, we'll come back to you on that. And the other one is... Um, uh, this is about... If, yeah, I don't know enough about this. It's about the, the deregistration of a World Heritage site, which may have coincided with the contribution by China of some money to, to Kiribati. I'm sorry, we don't, we're not qualified to talk about that. But there is a story on um, One News about it, which I wasn't aware of. And just one final... This is probably the first time we've, we've decided I not know. to talk bollocks about something we don't actually know <laughs> enough about. Yeah, normally we're not stumped, but no. that, that one was stumped. Final question, what does sustained inflation, including wage inflation, do to inequality? Uh, uh, it's, worsening at, at, it's worsening at the moment because, in effect, we've got wage deflation because wages aren't rising as fast as prices. And at the same time, you've got central banks printing money, pushing up asset prices, so it worsens inequality. Uh, now, the question is, how long is the inflation going to last? And will people be able to exercise any wage power to turn that around? And, and that's, the, that's the key thing for me. The unions are not larger. The work platforms are still there. The pressure uh, from the globalization of services continues to weigh down on wages. And when you look at these surveys of what employees actually think about their own job situation, their own wage situation, not many of them feel great power 
not many of them feel like they can quit their job and move on. And you're seeing some of that in places like America. But the churn rates... You mean um, the great resignation? Yeah, 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 yeah. But the churn rates here are not that high. And But, you know, stuff happens. Uh, things change. Um, maybe this time is different. But for the last 10 years, we've been predicting inflation it hasn't come. Certainly, this is the biggest challenge I've seen to it in that 10 years. But... I'd like to see how it plays out through next year, particularly through the middle of next year, to see how the supply chains sort themselves out. And the other thing that's worth knowing, with all this talk of supply chain problems and inflation and container rates and that sort of thing, when you actually look at the volumes, the numbers that are going through the ports and onto the warehouses, they're actually at record highs. So, yes, there's congestion, but it's not reducing the volumes no, going through. No, absolutely. And so what you're seeing is a stretching of the systems and changing of rules, new ways of doing things, which may mean in the long run, when it cleans out, there'll be even more capacity, which again, um, reverses some of that inflation pressure. But you know, so, for so now- somebody, somebody mentioned you know, whether the government will be bullied, bullied as they put it into opening up the border. Uh, I suspect they actually will, Bernard. I think that we, the you know, January, February will be open, won't we? Certainly by the end of March, and as the, the noise grows... Hermit king, hermit, the hermitness of the hermit kingdom will come to an end. Yeah. I think that, if anything, it's the political poll results this week hmm. which have guaranteed that the opening will be earlier in December than perhaps might have been the case previously, and that when the borders come down, uh, they are likely to come down with a bit more of a rush than we previously expected, simply because... The political pain is too great. And if, it, if there's one thing the government is pretty good at, it's sniffing the breeze and knowing that it's losing centrist voters. And in the last couple of weeks, you've seen Labour's poll support drop. Four okay, to and six the people who are going to bear the consequences of that are the unvaccinated yep. and Maori and Pacifica. Yeah. And the brutal truth of it stand is by for that. they're not median voters. And when push comes to shove, the government's about getting re-elected, and it would be the same if the opposition was in power. Um, it's one of the horrible things about democracies. They're not very nice to minorities. The government held on for as long as it could, but I think in the last couple of weeks, essentially, the pressure became too great. We'll find out on November the 29th, and, you know, things can go wrong. If we get up to four or 500 cases by then, and... It, you know, well, let's hope not. Yeah, the government may feel it has no choice. But politically, it's it's got us back to the wall and is now looking for excuses to open up as opposed to the other way around. Yeah, yeah, very interesting way to put it. Thank you, Bernard. Hey, thanks, um, Peter. And thank you very much, everyone. Uh, it was slightly after 12, 5 o'clock, but that's because I started late. My apologies. And um, I wish you all the best best for the weekend. Kakita or not? You too, Bernard. What, what weekend? We're going to be working. Bye. Right. Bye. See you later. <laughs> Bye. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.